Do you want a cash-flowing portfolio that lets you live a life of freedom? Sunsets and palm trees on your terms. Your host, Corey Peterson, is a rags-to-riches real estate millionaire who started with no money or credit and quickly grew a multi-million dollar portfolio of cash-flowing apartments. You're only one deal away from creating the cash flow life, and the Multifamily Legacy Podcast will show you how. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Multifamily Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peterson. Today, we've got a great show. We've got a great guest that's really going to go over in detail some of the structures of creating some funds, how they work, how to protect you if you're going into other deals with other investors, how to protect your investors so the other partners don't see all your people. It's something that you're going to really want to pay attention to. It's a great show. It's great content. You're going to want to bring out some notepads and and take some mental notes because this one's going to be truly the bomb. Uh, Before we get to it, though, dude, you guys have been going on to iTunes. I can't even tell you how excited I am when you guys do this. But Q Brill says, fantastic show. Corey brings amazing guests onto his show that have incredibly inspiring stories that will kickstart your investor journey. Hey, listen, that's exactly it. We don't bring anybody. We only bring great people. And I'm telling you, that's why I love this podcast. I love sharing the energy, the uh, the goods, the bads, the highs, the lows, the inspiration, the why. Because this business is so damn good. And you're in the right spot, my friend. Last one comes from Laura Herman. Says, awesome show. A great listen for anyone who wants to know how they can profit from investing in the right deals. Love it. Listen, I love it when you guys take the time to get onto iTunes. I know it does take a little minute and a quick minute to get there. But I really just really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. But now let's get a real quick word from our sponsors. At Kahuna Investments, we partner with passive investors to create award-winning communities families love to call home. If you want to learn more about our company and our process, go to www.kahunainvestments.com and click the deal room. All right, we're back. Now, so my next guest, he's a really great guy. His name's Ike Mutabana. He's been helping investors build wealth through large-scale real estate projects, through his a community approach, and his creative funding structures. Um, his investors are able to create their own groups or join trusted groups to benefit these types of projects. Ike uh, owns over 3,000 multifamily units in Texas, Florida, and North Carolina, and he also has some stuff in like office buildings. So he's got a, a great knowledge, a great insight into raising capital He's playing it at a little bit higher level, and it's really neat to see his joy, his passion, and really, you're going to see that he really thinks about these little steps and these little things that you can do to help guide you on your journey to unlock legacy wealth. So let's put our hands together for Ike Mutabana, and here we go. Hey, Ike. Welcome to the show, brother. Hey, happy to be here. You know, really excited about to have you on the show. And what you've been able to do is pretty cool, pretty amazing. For everybody that's listening, can you give us just your short version of where you came from and what you've done so far? Absolutely. So in real short, my background is as an electrical and computer engineer. I'm originally from India. That's where I grew up. 
And after I finished my college education there, as well as you know, working there for a little bit, I got to come to the U.S. on a scholarship for a graduate degree. And through a lot of adventures in supply chain, mathematical modeling, optimization technologies, and a whole bunch of interesting things, I found myself into marketing, market research. And then through all of those connections I made, I encountered a few people who are in commercial real estate. So without going into that whole long-winded story, about six years ago is when I ended up in commercial real estate. I did that for about, you know, let's say about eight months or so on the side while in my full-time uh, career. And then said, you know what, this is going to be my, the next phase of my life now. So I left that, started off full-time. And since then, I've been involved in a whole different types of you know, commercial deals specifically focused on multifamily acquisitions and especially built up a lot of strength around the concept of creating private funds, you know, what everybody calls syndications, but it's a lot more complex than, you know, generic term syndications, right? There's a lot of different structures you can do. So I've sort of become really familiar and developed a fair amount of strong experience in fund structures. So that's one of the big trends I bring to almost every project that I participate in, whether it's as a lead sponsor or sometimes as a co-sponsor. Right. Well, so, and that's a great segue to kind of, let's just jump right into it. Yeah. And right now you're in almost a, what, 3,000 doors? Yeah. Yeah. And and some office and some, I mean, you you kind of got in all of it a little bit. That's a big feat. Anytime you get into that, you know... It takes a lot to get to, you know, your first deal to a thousand doors. And then anything over a thousand doors takes a whole different set of uh, things, right? And a lot of it is the sophistication or structures of raising money, right? And, and how you structure that and how you get it done. So let's open that up and say, uh, you know, talk to us about it. Yeah, um, let's talk about that. So, you know, maybe... Tell me how we should structure this conversation, Corey. We can start with you know something as simple as what the most simplest structures are, and then you can go from there. And yeah, then- yeah, perfect. Yeah, we'll start at the, the very beginning, and then let's go. We'll get. We'll just get in the weeds with it, man. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So this might obviously this. Pay attention, everybody. By the way, because we're getting ready to lay down some magic. <laughs> we'll have some fun here. So obviously, for those of you who are already in the business and have done a number of deals. The initial, this, this basic concept obviously is going to be very familiar. You know, you find a deal, you want to do the deal, you come together with, you know, other partners with whom you have complementary skills so that you can create an operations team on that deal. And then the next thing you do is go find investors who are going to come in and bring in capital for that deal. Now, you probably will put in some money of your own as well, but you're going to have, you know, people who are primarily going to be passive investors, as they're called, because their main focus is providing you capital and getting a strong return for that capital, right? So we're not going to go into necessarily, you know, all the legalities around this because I'm not an attorney, don't want to go down that path, but, and make sure you talk to an attorney before you do anything we discuss on this show, obviously, right? Yep. But in the simplest form, that's what it is. It's basically you have operating partners and you have limited partners who are passive investors. Now, The question is, how do these structures fall about, right? So the very simplest level, you've got a property, you want to take it under your operations and acquire it. What you could do is create an entity. Let's say that entity is an LLC. Again, the most simplest form out there. There's a lot of forms that a lot of operators use. There's 
limited partnerships, which achieve the same goal, but are much more complex. And there's specific reasons why attorneys will recommend those versus an LLC. But for most normal, I don't like to use the word normal, but for the most common types of transactions we have out there, LLC seems to work. Yep. You create the LLC, the LLC then buys the property and holds title to the property. The LLC is also where you have the two types of people, the managers who are the people who operate the property, and then the limited partners who are the, the investors. This is the most simplest thing, right? Yep. One step from there, one step from there, let's think about what the cons of this simplest structure are. The cons are, number one, that your one entity holds title to the property, also does all the asset management on the property, is also the borrower, because you're going to take a commercial loan, most likely, right? I mean, any deal of any decent size, you're going to take some kind of commercial loan. That entity is also the borrower on that. And it's basically one entity that has multiple different functions. At a very simple level, that's great. But where it starts becoming hairy is where you start having liability concerns that might come up. If someone sues the property, they're basically suing the entity that holds title to the property, which is now the entity that holds your investors as well. It's also the entity that's taken the loan. So you've got a higher risk on that one entity. So the simplest thing you could do there is break that up. Have one entity that holds a property, have a different entity that holds your investors. Let's call, let's say A is the entity that holds title on the property and B is the entity that holds all your investors. B can be the 100% owner of A, but it creates a nice line of separation in terms of the liability shield for you, right? As well as an operational shield. The other interesting thing that happens when you do this is most lenders like your entity to be a single purpose entity. They don't want your entity to do anything else apart from owning that property, right? So now when you have this nice separation, theoretically, I'm not saying you should do this, but theoretically that entity B, which has the investors can now invest in other entities as well, in other properties as well. But in the first case, it couldn't do that. Exactly. Because now A is the one that has title, A is the one that took the loan from the lender and A is solely dedicated to that one property. The another interesting benefit of this two-tiered structure, in some states, they trigger taxes, property tax evaluations, appraisals at the time of sale. In a state like Texas, it is irrelevant because Texas appraises every single year, right? Florida appraises every single year. North Carolina, interestingly, another market that I'm in, it is every four years, exactly. But a state like Ohio, has a similar 46-year cycle, except when there is a title transaction. Right. Which means at the moment title changes hands, the assessor is going to be at your door looking at what's happened. Knock, knock. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I'm telling you, Ohio is in many states probably are similar to that. Each county has their own rules around this stuff as well. Like Cuyahoga County not only will assess, but will also in fact put a 1.5 times escrow on any improvements they believe that county should do. The county believes you should do, right? right? So there's all kinds of caveats there. The good thing of the two-tier structure is you could technically not sell the property. You could sell the entity A that holds title. So title never changes, right? And yeah. your buyer gets that break from you know, having to worry about yeah, having access. to worry about, oh, gosh, 
we just created a tax of exactly yeah it's basically like a, you know right? people holding employee stocks and the stocks vest and the next thing you know you're paying taxes on something that you didn't actually make money from until you actually sell that yep so that is yeah that's a great like little segue to say here's basic here's a little more complicated right but it really is it revolves around understanding the game as far as the tax and implications and then also you know liability you know liability is a big risk especially when you're raising millions of dollars from you know passive investors right they don't want to be any more at risk than just their money right and so by creating these structures properly you're going to give them a lot more assurance that hey because properly done incorrectly what will happen is they could be not only at risk for their money but some of their personal assets too even though they're limited partners but i mean it's yeah, all it, tied to the same entity it is and the problem is right away with. problem also is that a lot depends on how the operating managers of that entity are following good business practices with that and you're absolutely right even though the investors are limited partners if you've made mistakes even if they're unintentional and the court decides they can pierce the, the liability veil you are putting your investors at risk at that point. That's so. exactly because it goes back to interpretation of the law, and like, listen, that's what lawyers spend hours and hours doing, right? And figuring out one case that they can bring up and say, based on this case law, right, it was appropriate here, so it should be appropriate in this one too, judge. Yeah. And if a judge says yes, I think you're right, and he hits the gavel, right, you could be down the road with, uh, you know. With a wire paddle and you know, and, and, and a canoe that's leaking. <laughs> no, that's absolutely right. There's also another interesting operational advantage to the two-tier structure instead of the one, and it's it's a very small advantage, but I think I like it, which is that when you're in a single-tier structure, now assuming that you're always going to use third-party property management, if you're going to self-manage, it's irrelevant. But if you're going to use third-party, what typically happens in a single-tier structure is you're going to probably ask the property manager because they're managing the books for that entity, right? The entity, the, the one entity that exists. Because of that, what's going to happen is they're also going to manage distributions to your investors. Yep. So which means now you're exposing your investors' information to a third-party property management company, which may be okay if you have a good, stable, long-term relationship with them, you've used them on multiple deals and you keep doing that and you're satisfied with their work, that's great. But what if that's not the case? What if you decide... A year later, you are going to fire them because they're not performing the way you thought. And that happens quite a lot. Right. Property management companies, you know, they all are have a hit shelf life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are you ready for retirement? The majority of Americans are not. Failing Social Security and dated financial planning practices put strains on many retirees' finances. 46% of Americans admit they are not taking steps to prepare for the likelihood they outlive their retirement savings. Luckily, it's not too late. Diversify your portfolio. At Kahuna Investments, we partner with passive investors to create award-winning communities families love to call home. To learn more about our company and our process, go to www.kahunainvestments.com and click the deal room. If you fire them, now you go to number two. Now you're going to transfer all of that investor information from a company that was with you to a new company you don't know what the data retention practices are right. of these third-party companies. Yep. So you don't know if they'll correctly scrub your investor data 
Exactly. Right? Or did they keep it? Are they doing anything with it? Like once it's there, exactly. it's there. Once you give it to your third party management company, and th- and listen, that's data that they have to have, right? Right. Unless you're doing it, which you're talking about the two tier structure. In which case, they never interact with your B entity, which has the investors. They're only interacting with the A entity that holds title because that's the one they manage. That's the right. one they manage the books for. Everything is going to be flow through, right? From an if it's an LLC or even an LP, it's all going to be a flow through. But at least that way, you are privately managing your fund entity or the entity that has your investors with your own accountant. And that way you can safeguard that data, that very important sensitive data, you can safeguard that, right? So that's another advantage. I like that. You know, we were talking before the show started about also like a fund of funds. Mm. So let's talk about what that is and why and where would you want to use something like that? Yeah. So again, I'm just going to repeat just in case you, decide, you know, as a listener decided to come in in the midway through this conversation, not an attorney. And this conversation is purely, you know, based on our education and experience on both sides, Corey, right? Yep. We're not, sure you... do not hold us liable for anything we say. Right. Or do. Attorneys, talk to attorneys before you do anything, but let's talk about our experience. Yes. So based on our experience, what I think there's a lot of interesting facets around fund of funds. First, think of the reasons why you want something, right? Let's say theoretically, not theoretically, hypothetically, hypothetically, you've got a deal. Yep. It's a $5 million. It's a deal that requires $5 million of money to be raised, right? And you've got, let's say, two partners in there. Each of you say, I'm going to raise two and a half million each. There are, there are a few different things to think about. Number one is, do you guys have you know, complete transparency in terms of the investors you bring to the table? Or is your business operation such that you have your own investor you know, methodology and how you raise money, the kind of investors you go after, you want to shield them in some way because of the type of relationships you have with them? Yep. You know, the one operator might have relationships with more retail investors who, who are people in, from technology, doctors, you know, people who are going to put in you know, $25,000, $50,000 while the other partner might be the one who has listed the family office relationships or he has high net worth relationships of one type. I'm just describing different yeah, scenarios. Yeah, because what we're saying too is what we're really trying to do is like I got two or three, you know, me, you, and another guy were like, hey, let's do right. a deal. Like I don't want to give you my list of investors. Exactly. Whoever they are. Right. Exactly. And you don't want to do the same for me. Like you're like, eh, listen, like Corey want like the deal, but right. I'm not giving you my Rolodex. Right. Exactly. So it's you're right. It's like two sales guys in the same sales department, right? They don't to share clients. But we all can agree to this uh structure. We like this deal. And let's you know what we're saying is let's do a deal together. We can join forces, and that's what how a lot of these big multifamily deals come together exactly. is, you know, Ike's got his own little community that he works well with. And right. he's like, I think I can do this. And that's how it happens. And then this structure that you're going to really talk about is something that will help facilitate what we want, Absolutely. which is I want to be able to do a deal with Ike, but I want some autonomy to my list because I want to be in control of my investors. Right. I don't need Ike sending out mass emails to everybody. Right. No, and maybe, absolutely. you know, because maybe you communicate every day with your investors. Maybe I communicate once a week or once right. a month. Everybody's got it differently and everybody's got different expectations. Yeah. I mean, there are people who actually who thrive on regular phone calls or 
regularly holding a webinar every month with their investors. It's fine, right? I mean, yeah. everybody has their own methodology, their own style. The bottom line is you want to be able to safeguard your operation in terms of the capital raising, because that is a very critical component of literally any deal you do. Yep. So this would be one of the most fundamental reasons why you might decide to do a fund of fund structure where you say, you know what, both of us are going to come in and raise equal amounts of money, but we're going to create our own fund, right? So it's the same property, same deal, but, you know, operator Tom will have his fund called Tom's Investors and operator John will have his own investor uh, base called John's Investor Fund. They both will raise money for the exact same deal and come in together, right? Yep. They'll have the same terms. Everything will work exactly the same way. They just live within two different bubbles. That's one very core reason. Another reason why sometimes it might make sense is if there's a difference of opinion on the returns you're going to share with your investors. And this is a little less common, but it can happen. For example, a deal may be such that you can actually structure a really complex waterfall model. You might have a model that says, based on so-and-so criteria, I'm going to give 7% ref. Based on this other criteria, I'm going to give an 8% ref. Based on this other criteria, I'm going to give a hurdle on, let's say, the upside, where at some point it's 80-20, then it becomes 70-30 and then 50-50, right? I'm just making up stuff here yep, a little bit, yep, yep. but I'm trying to demonstrate the idea that waterfalls can get quite complex. Three tranches. So everybody said, so in other words, like this is what you're saying here, me, you, and another guy, we have investors. And maybe there's one, usually in these types, there's a lead. It's usually the guy that has it under contract, right? And he's going to come up and say, hey, Ike, I got this deal. You say, yep, looks like a deal. Corey, here's what my investors need. Right. I need to raise at this pref, at this hurdle, and you're going to kind of lay out your particulars of what you need, right? Exactly. Okay, we understand that. And then John, the guy, he's like, wait, I got a whole set of different criteria. Right. And this is what my investors like. So we need to, I need to do it this way. Right. And then, and I'm the same way. I, okay, well, here's my flavor, but right. we all look at it together and like, we still pencil the deal using everybody's flavor. We still right. think it works. And we're like, okay, now let's go create some fund to fund structures. Exactly. It's because now what you could do is as long as all of the investors across the board get the same final returns, right? So everybody, let's say it's a 1.9 X equity multiple. Let's say it's a 15% IRR. As long as that fundamental thing the IRR can change a little bit. Let me not use the IRR because that depends really on the money flow. But let's say the multiple. Equity multiple, to be honest, is what most investors care about. Right. The PREF and the equity multiple. As long as the equity multiple is almost the same for everybody and the deal pencils out at a project level to support that, you really can start getting creative. I personally like very simple structures for my investors. I don't like 10,000 tiers. I like a PREF, a waterfall, and then a performance hurdle. That's it. A lot of other people like a lot of complex structures. So no, I've, I I've been in deals where I've said, you know, fine, guys, let's do one thing. Let's have a very simple structure at the baseline level for this deal. My fund will follow that baseline level. Your funds can follow whatever you want as long as the final result matches the baseline. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's fine. I might decide that I want a 2% acquisition fee. Somebody might say they want a 3% acquisition fee. That's fine. That can live within your fund while I live within my fund on that. Yeah. Right. So we can have different structures of the investor returns, different structures behind the fees that you charge your investors, and all of them can still live in the same property or the same deal, 
as long as you live within your own fund with your own rules around it. Yeah. So that's that's, that's a really good takeaway on this. If you're listening right now, that's a you did a really good job I, of kind of flushing that out and why that would probably, you know, that makes sense. And really when you first start out, it's like just friends and family. You're just trying to get your first deal. Right. After you've gotten a little bit more developed, and this is really a little bit more complex uh, right. strategy of guys that are already saying, hey, I've got an investor list. I've got people. I just want to protect it. I still want to do deals. And I have other people and partners that I can do deals with. I'm not trying to be just the one-man band show. But here's how we need to operate in a way to protect everybody and to get us all to where we want to go. Exactly. exactly. And so this is kind of like level five, right? Right, right. And then if you want to go beyond that, that is when you start thinking in terms of, are you going to be raising funds just for a single property or are you going to be raising funds for multiple properties, right? So, yeah. and again, that can happen for a whole bunch of reasons. It can happen for, because you decide that you're going to go after this particular sub-market and you've got a target of, let's say, five properties you're going to go after. At that point, you already know what you're going after. It makes no sense to raise money one by one for each one. Yep. Raise a portfolio fund and just go after all five properties your investors benefit because they're part of a portfolio now rather than one property. Yep. And you benefit because you're not raising money again and again for the same target. Yeah, now the there you have to be super careful. You've got to make sure that you've got those locked in because what you don't want to do is take money for deals that don't come to fruition. Right. Because then you've got to pay money on that. Exactly. You're still paying money. And this is, that's a good, and that's another good one. I've seen people that create these big funds and then I think it leads to bad investing sometimes, right? Because exactly. then if they don't, if the deals go bad, but they still raise all this money, now they're like, man, I've got to put this money to work. Right. Right. And they may slide on some things because right. they just need to make a deal go. Right? right. And so, you know, things to look out for. And listen, you know, you can always float some money for a certain amount of time as well, too, right. because listen, you know, this business is not fast. It's kind of right. slow. Right. But, uh, and deals, and if you're in the hunt for the, you know, a good tranche of deals, something will show up. Yeah, absolutely. And look, and you can be creative as well, right? You can be creative about trying to, you know, have other sources of funding apart from just your investor money and your lender. You could have pref equity, you could have you know, other types of investment capital coming in yep. that has different levels of involvement and different types of returns. So that's possible. I always say that if you're going to go in for the idea of creating a fund for multiple properties, right? Either you better have the portfolio locked in and you know that's going to happen. Or if you're going to do something that is a little bit more blind, where you know that this is your target criteria, but you don't have every deal locked in yet, then what you want to do is follow a capital call model, right? Where you're not trying to get all the money into your fund right away. Right. But you actually get commitments. And these are hard commitments, not soft commitments where people say, yeah, sure, I'll put in you know, $100,000. And when you go for the actual, make the call, they don't have the money. So yep. these have to be hard calls where they're actually signing paperwork. Everything is locked in. You're just not asking them to transfer funds until the deal materializes. And then yep. you structure your fund in such a manner, your returns, your PREF doesn't accrue until a capital call happens. So, for example, so you're not on the hook for money while you're yes, not while yeah. you're not doing it, right? So, for example, right, we talk in an office asset project as well, and that's exactly what's happening there. Where 
there's a lot of different offices and there's specific criteria around what is being acquired. And, you know, someone who's pledged about $100,000, even after two years, has actually only funded close to about $65,000 yet because all of the deals haven't come to fruition yet. But yeah. that's okay because I'm getting the pref on the $65,000, even though I've pledged $100,000. And what sometimes we do is the pref that comes in, we can tell the investor, we'll hold on to your pref rather than giving it to you. And we'll apply that towards the next capital call. So you're not giving money out of pocket, right? So there's a lot of creativity you can do in that model, which helps investors, but helps you not, you know, mess up what you're trying to do. Right. Listen, what a great little, I think we can kind of start putting a bow on this thing because that's a lot of information that we just handed down everybody. Right. That was really good. And what a great job of explaining that we don't have visual aids here. So yeah, this is yeah. just live. <laughs> but that's a testament too to understanding when you know that you know your business and you know right. the model, and you can discuss and talk about it without really having anything because this is what we do. This is right. the business of being a full-time syndicator. And what a great story, Ike, from, you know, going from where you are from India to the U.S. to the job to finally like seeing the vision and saying, dude, that's where I go, right? And making that change. I can tell that you have a passion and love for it. Quick question, what was kind of go to the end here is what books are, is there anything you're reading right now that's just really turned the needle for you that that's really got you like, man, that's a great little read or what are you reading now? Not really anything at this moment, but a, a couple of books I've read recently, I think have really struck a chord. There was one book called The Power of Zero that I read maybe a month ago. And it's actually a book about this, this lady who started a startup and whose entire goal was figuring out how to motivate her, the people working with her in a startup, but couldn't, you know, really can't afford to give everybody bonuses and because it's a startup company, they don't have the money. And she's found these intangible factors that motivate people, right? We think that money is the only thing that motivates people, but recognition, acknowledgement, you know, being there to understand what is helping that drive that person can really help do that as well. So what she talks about in, the, in that book, and I wish I could remember the author's name, but... We'll find it yeah. and we'll put it in the show notes, so don't worry about it. Yeah, and what I'll do is I'll look it up and I'll send it to you later as well. Okay. That's one book. Another good book is this one, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you remember, but we were sitting at dinner together and, you know, sign this book for me. I guess it's very... It is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Corey Peterson, copy your way to success. Love the book, buddy. Oh, thank you. Thank you, my friend. Oh, that's a wonderful plug. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> hey, listen, you know, it's really interesting to see how the journey of real estate changes life. And, and I just want to end on this is when you think about this journey that you've went on, what has it done for you? Like personally, emotionally, financially, what has apartment investing done for you? I think the most fundamental thing it's done for me, it's given me time to spend on things that I really value, which is my family, my children, right? One of the big, big things that really pushed my thinking into this was the fact that I was working in these high-stress jobs. There was an entire year that went by when my younger kid was in kindergarten. I did not participate even in a single school event that whole year because I was just way too busy. But now I'm in charge of my own destiny. I'm in charge of my own time. I can be there for my kids to the extent that you know they need me which is, and this is a short window I have with them. So that I think is the biggest thing it's done for me. 
Oh, dude, that's a great story, man. That, that to me, that is why this business works. It gives you the two things I think we all desire the most, which right. is time, number one, right. and then to have some money too, right? So it helps with, right. you can still have some money to go do some things. So it gives you yeah. more choices, but more valuable than money truly is time, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. those kids, kids don't have, they have two craps about how much money you got. Right. All right. they want to know is if dad's going to be there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just the one experience of taking, you know, my girls hiking, they love Chinese food, you know, hiking, you know, 10 miles with them and then sitting down to eat Chinese food. They're going to remember that more than anything else I give them. Yeah. Amen to that. Cool. How do people get a hold of you? How, how would they find you, your guys' company? Sure. Yeah. I have a learning and educational website called Wealth Chakra. So that's W-E-A-L-T-H Wealth and Chakra, C-H-A-K-R-A, WealthChakra.com. The whole idea is to bring together people in the form of a community. So that we can all help each other, you know, do better with our investing journeys, but overall wealth building as well. And my email is Ike at wealthchakra.com. So those are the two best ways to reach out to me. Perfect. And then last thing, if you could leave any uh, wisdom or to anybody that's new, that's thinking about getting in this business, what would you tell them? Don't do it alone. As simple as that. Don't try to do it alone. Right. I know a lot of people have this thing that I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to do it all by myself. Just doesn't work. You got to include people. You got to form a community, form a bonds, find a mentor if, if that's possible for you. And if not, at least join a community of like-minded people with whom you can collaborate. And when you start doing it that way, it doesn't take long to ramp up and make Amen. it work. Ike, thanks so much. Guys, listen, if you're listening to this podcast, this is what this show's about. It's about giving. It's about having support. It's about you know these great concepts that we just put out there today for you. Um, listen, Real estate is a journey, but the first journey that starts is the one in your mind. It's the most powerful journey you'll ever take, right? Don't take it lightly. Go through that path. Go hard, steam hard, charge on. If you believe it, you can achieve it. And your paradise is possible. 